Hi folks, John Curry here with another episode of John Curry's Secure Retirement Podcast. I've been looking forward to this interview today. I'm sitting here with my friend Terry Lewis, who recently retired as circuit judge. Been wanting to do this for a long time, Terry, but we couldn't do it because you were still actively working and we didn't feel comfortable doing it. But uh, welcome and thank you for agreeing to do the podcast. My pleasure. The reason I wanted Terry to be with us today is because he has worked in the legal field as an attorney, a Leon County judge, circuit judge, but he's also an author. So we're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to talk about how he got into writing books and why he likes doing it, and also talk about some of his most famous cases, most interesting cases. But Terry, if you would first, just tell us who the heck Terry Lewis is. Give us a little bit of your background. Well, I'm a North Florida native. I was uh, born in Live Oak and uh, grew up in Perry and uh, then came to Florida State. And so I haven't steered too far from, uh, from my home. And um, my dad was uh, in business for himself. He was a subcontractor in construction industry, did flooring, uh, mostly tile. And then when carpet became a little, little more um, popular, did that. I worked some for him. I wasn't his best worker, so he probably didn't want to be <laughs> too much around. And uh, my mother was a school teacher. And so um, that's pretty much where I came. So I came up to FSU in 69, went to school, and ended up going to law school here. What possessed you to want to become an attorney? What was the attraction? I th- I'm not sure, except I always... In the back of my head, from a young age, I kind of liked um, the idea of it. I always kind of thought I'd be a lawyer. I don't know why, uh, except that I used to watch Perry Mason when I was growing up, and I said, well, he's cool. I like that, you know, and that's, yeah, that was about it. And, um, you know, I thought about teaching. That's I like that, too, and I, I like teachers. I always have. My mother was a teacher, and so... Yep. Um, but I also knew from experience that teachers don't make a lot of money. And not that I wanted to make a lot of money, but I, I thought, well, I like both of them, but I think I like law, and I think I can make a little better income doing that. So that's pretty much what I did. That's why I majored in history in college. What are you going to do with history unless you teach, right? That's right. <laughs> and so, so I said, well, but I'm going to law school, right? So if I hadn't gotten into law school, I guess I would have been a teacher probably. That's funny because I remember three paths I thought about doing. I wanted to be a minister, school teacher, and a lawyer. Hmm. And I moved here from the Air Force to go to FSU, then law school. Chose not to do it, so I didn't go to law school. But I, I have so many friends and clients that are attorneys. Sometimes I look back and I go, well, I, I made the right choice for me, but I enjoy still reading and studying about legal issues. Yeah. That's why I enjoy these, doing these interviews. I think a lot of people do. That's why the you know the cop shows and the legal theme shows are, are very popular on yes. television. A bunch of them. A bunch of them. I always enjoyed Perry Mason, but I got to tell you, my favorite one was Boston Legal. Oh yeah, with William Shatner. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. A lot of tongue in cheek and a lot of a lot of um, yes. Um, I guess black humor. Right. That one. Dark humor. Yeah. I could see you as being one of the characters in that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there was also one that came up. Um, a little before that, I can't think of his name, but it was, but it was a firm out of, maybe it's L.A. Law. It was a firm out of Los Angeles. I mean, Corbin Benson was on that, who ended up, 
playing the father on Psych. Uh, but um, that was like a real blue stocking law firm. Um, but nothing quite like the old Perry Mason. Now, here's a question for you. While you were especially working as a judge, did you ever look at any of these shows and go, oh man, they're so off base? Or did you look at it and say it's pretty realistic? Or a combination? Combination, yeah. Um, <clears throat> You mentioned writing. Um, I would read and I would see things, obviously, and say, "Oh, come on now!" Yeah, they don't, they, I'm sure every profession that sees themselves represented in a, in a film or TV or whatever do that. And um, but so it's not unusual. But yeah, you'd see things and say, "What are they?" Like Law and Order, where they're walking down the hallway uh, talking to the judge about a search warrant. Oh, come on! You know, just you're not doing that. That, that that's not going to happen. Or, or John Grisham um, novel where they're ex parte, you know, talking with the judge without the other side being there, when they, which they can't do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I look at things sometimes and say, that's crazy. And sometimes I, I, the ones I like, uh, says, yeah, that's pretty realistic. Wouldn't we call that poetic license? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they do call that, um, or whatever they call it, some sort of, I forget, yeah, some sort of license. Mm-hmm. Um, that's okay. And, uh, and, John Grisham sells a lot of books, right? But we'll, my wife and I'll be driving down, you know, listen to Audible or something of a, and she, and she, who's not a lawyer but is pretty smart, will say, "Well, wait a second, they can't do that, can they?" And I say, "No, they can't," you know. Um, which, you know, you say you get a little bit of license, but it, it takes away from the verisimilitude, you know, the authenticity. Which, if you're in that, it, it sort of, you know, you descend. What is it? Suspend your disbelief. Right. You, you get into the story, and then something like that happens. It charges you. So well, uh, now, now I don't believe it. Right. Um, so you got to be careful how yes. much license you take. I think. True. I think that's true of any type of uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Since we're into that, talk a little bit about what our court system looks like and how it works. Most people listening to this will never ever go before a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they do, it's going to be could be a, a traffic violation. It could be some small thing. Could be a, a marriage or a divorce or some friend in trouble going as a uh, character witness or something. So just walk through a little bit from your experience as an attorney, and then the two different levels of judge. If just a little bit about our legal system, if you would educate us. And the very <coughs> the time we have, I will. It was very limited. Sure. Well, I um, as we were talking before. Um, and actually, I, I've taught a course on occasion with judges called Perceptions of Justice. And the, the whole premise of that is that, as a judge, even if you make the absolutely correct legal decision, the correct ruling according to the law, if the parties in front of you don't understand it and walk away not, not knowing why you did what you did, have you really done justice? It, it, the perception being as important, at least, perhaps more important than the actual law itself or the doing of justice. So um, I've always thought it important to do that. Now, the journalist system itself, um, you know, I remember when I was very new on the bench and I went to a course um, that talked about small claims. I was in county court and we have small claims, which is um, the people's court, they call it. That's where a lot of people go. You, you're, the amount involved is very small. The rules of procedure are less formal. 
And anybody that's ever watched the People's Court on TV or Judge Judy or whatever have a pretty good idea, okay, I've read your complaint, or blah, 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 here we are, let's see what we're going to do. And um, Those are fun to watch too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't happen like that. Uh, they're not rude like Judge Judy. I've heard that, but I just shut up and sit down. You know, I wouldn't believe you if your tongue was notarized. Now, yeah. um, it's um, you're a comedian too. I forgot to tell people that it's not. It's not quite like that. <clears throat> but um, I remember this course, and the guy that was doing it um, made a very good point. He held up. Um, a picture of a person said, okay, who, who can tell me who this person is? Uh, this is Justice Brennan from the U.S. Supreme Court. Then he held up a picture of Judge Wapner, who, if you're way back, was the original People's Court judge. Everybody knew him. All the hands went up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Judge Wapner. And um, the point was is, is that most people in the population, if they go to court, will end up in county court. They'll end up in small claims or misdemeanor traffic. Um, we are what we call what, what we call the volume discount dealer in county court. I mean, you see so many people, and so um, there's good and bad about that because there's so many. You have to have streamlined um, methods or procedures to handle cases, and you end up if you've ever been to a traffic court a room full of 150 people. You see a video, and the video is like a, an advisory. Okay, here's what's going to happen today. You know, you're charged here with a traffic offense. You've got three choices. You can plead guilty, not guilty, no contest. If you plead no contest, you're guilty. Here's what's going to happen if you're a first time, blah, blah, blah. Here's the sentence you might expect. So it walks it through, and, and um, if you want to have an attorney, you can't afford it. It's, it's sort of like what you would do with an individual, but you do it in, by video for the mass people. And in county court, you can actually enter what's called a plea in absentia which means I can enter a plea and the judge doesn't have to be there. And I know what my sentence will be because it's already spelled out in this plea agreement. Well, that's pretty cool. So um, a lot of times as, as a county judge, I'd come in and what used to be 150 is down to about 25 because everybody has you know, paid their small little fine or done whatever it is and they're gone. Um, and you have the advantage of it being consistent. You're charged with this and you know that everybody's going to get the same thing. Um, in, in small claims, um, it, it's like a judge duty, but without the rudeness. Uh, people come in, and it's it's designed to be quick. You file a complaint, and the complaint doesn't have to be anything formal. It just might be, John Curry owes me money because I loaned him $500. He hadn't paid me back. That's all you need. Really? It's that simple? It's that simple. I it's never called, knew that. It's called a statement of claim. So what they depend <clears throat> on is they serve it on the defendant. I'd be the plaintiff. You'd be the defendant. Serve it on you. And within... 35 days, we'll say, the case is in front of in the court. And I'm there and you're there. If you're not there, I get my judgment because you've been served, you didn't come, you didn't respond. If, if you're there and I'm not there, it gets dismissed. If we're both there, they say, well, listen, we're going to send you over here to a mediator. We have volunteers that will come in and try to help you resolve your case. So you go and you spend a few minutes. If you can't work it out, you come back. And we set up a trial. And the trial will be set within another 30 days. So your case, theoretically, should be over in 60, tops 90 days. So it's a very informal, very efficient way to handle it. And you sometimes wish, having been part of the system for a while, that we could incorporate a lot of that into other cases, which become extremely complicated and take way too long. And expensive. And expensive. <coughs> Taxpayer money. To, to resolve. 
but the more money at stake, the more people are reluctant to, to do that. Um, it's just, I guess, the nature of the beast. Uh, but most states are like Florida, and they are divided into what we call county court, which may be something else, and a circuit court. The county courts in Florida and the similar courts in other states are what we call courts of limited jurisdiction. Their authority is their they have authority or jurisdiction over certain types of cases. In county court in Florida, any civil case that involves less than $15,000 in damages that's at stake is in county court. Any crime that's a misdemeanor, and only a misdemeanor, it will be in county court. And some landlord-tenant eviction can be in county court. Circuit courts, and they go by different names in different states, are called courts of general jurisdiction, which means everything else, which includes anything over 15,000 civil, any more serious criminal offenses, family law, probate, guardianship, uh, real estate disputes, uh, so everything else is in, in circuit court. And that's pretty similar. What is confusing to a lot of people is that different states call those different courts by different names. In Florida, you're a county court, you're a circuit court. If you appeal from circuit court, you go to a district court of appeal. And then if, if you go from there, it's to a, the Florida Supreme Court. So it's still a state, state of Florida court. Right. So still it's a district of, court in right. the state. <clears throat> now, if you go in the federal system, the district court is not the court of appeal. It is the trial court. So go figure. But that's the, And if you go to a circuit court in the federal, that's the appellate court. So it's, it's, it's reversed. Yeah. Crazy. So it's confusing. Um, and, then, uh, and, and states have their own. And for example, in New York, the Supreme Court is the trial court. If you've ever watched Law & Order... They'll have a ding, ding, you know, they'll have a little thing to tell you, and they'll say, Supreme Court, day so-and-so. But it's not really the Supreme Court in terms of you think the Supreme Court, like the U.S. Supreme Court or Florida Supreme Court. It's the Trump Court. But so it can be very confusing, even for people who are familiar with it. But that's, that's most states and the federal system are, are usually set up that way. You don't have a county court in federal. You have what's called a magistrate. The magistrate in federal court will handle the less serious criminal things and minor civil stuff. So they're all pretty much like that um, in all the states in the federal system um, in terms of how you handle it. Well, you were a judge for a long time. So nine years county judge, 21 years circuit, so 30 years. Talk a little bit about what happened when you when the legislature came out with the standard rules on sentencing. I don't know what the proper name is. I'm going to call it standard rules. Sentencing guidelines. Sentencing guidelines. Thank you. Talk a little bit about that, how that changed your world from being a judge. Well, um, they actually came out with sentencing guidelines before I came on the bench. It would have been in the 80s, at least, if not early 80s, by the mid-80s, because at the time I was working as a contract um, to do appeals for a public defender's office. So I had, those were issues a lot of times where, well, you know, you violate this the sentencing guidelines, and that was an issue for appeal. Um, and they've changed over the years. At that point, it was a range from this to this. And um, you had to have written reasons. And a lot of the appellate court time was taken up with what's a valid legal reason to depart from that range. Um, Excuse me one second. Can you tell us why it even came about? Was it because of different judges having different views, so different views on the outcome? I think that's the, the conventional wisdom about it. It was that 
um, there was some concern in the legislature that somebody in Miami who uh, robbed a minute market would get three years and somebody in North Florida would get 30. And they said, well, that doesn't seem right. Uh, the <laughs> no. Geographical difference should make a... Of course, a lot of people would say, well, uh, no, if you believe in local rules, local customs, local whatever, it's just, well, this is how we feel up in North Florida. You commit a robber, you're going to jail for a long time, period. Yeah. Why should we, be, you know, but that was, I think, the impetus behind it was to try to make it more uniform. So if you went to prison, you're sitting there saying, well, what'd you do? I robbed a minute market. What'd you get? 30 years. Damn, I only got three. <laughs> and then you're going, hmm, well, what? You know, and you're thinking, something's wrong here. So like if, if I gave you the example, you went to a county court, traffic court, and um, you ended up in jail uh, for 12 months on a DUI. And the other guy says, no, I just paid a fine, did some community service and went to DUI school. You'd be thinking, I got railroaded. I, I yeah. got, you know, I, I got a bad deal. I don't here. like my judge. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, it's you know, as long as we have people doing it, it's gonna. But I think that was the idea was to take away some of the discretion to make it more uniform. Okay. And um, but it's any time you do that is you have inherent problems. Um, like I said, you got well. What's a, what's a good reason to depart? And you have to litigate all that. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of money. What do you mean by depart? Well, if you had a range, the law would say, well, you know, there may be circumstances where you want to go below or above. Okay. Um, you know, like uh, the defendant showed no remorse, so I'm bumping him up. Then you, well, we don't know whether that's going to be a good ground or not. And you go up to the appellate court and say, well, that's, you shouldn't do that. You know, he didn't show remorse because he said he was not guilty. And he got found guilty at trial, so that, that shouldn't apply. And, you know, just that's just one example of various things that judges would say justified it or going, you know, just going above, going below. You know, defendants, um, you know, was a sole provider for his family um, or there was a need for restitution to be paid, whatever. So you had, you had to work through all that. So, but that's, that's been since the 80s. That's what, 30, 40 years? Yep. I can't end that much. And they've changed. And, and then you have, of course, when they change it, you have somebody says, well, is he sentenced under the sentencing guidelines that were in effect at the time of his um, crime, at the time he was convicted, or the time now he's back? You know? It's a moving target, isn't I have a saying, more law, less justice. Uh, the more times you start tinkering with it, you know, after a while, you know, you get, and now we, we've in a groove now, I think, with the sentencing guidelines. They changed it several years back. So now, basically, they set a bottom. They didn't set a range. They said, okay, well, they score out, and if you came before me, they'd look at your past record, they'd look at the nature of the offense, various other things, and you would score. And if your score was a certain amount, um, then your minimum sentence would be X. And I would have the authority to sentence you to anything from the minimum up to the legal maximum. So let's say it's grand theft. You embezzled money from Jay here. And... Okay. Uh, and so you came up, you looked, do you have a record, you're not, you know, if, it, it may be that you scored what, what they'd call a non-state prison, which means you don't, unless you've got a good reason, you're not going to prison. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so it's that detail in, in the scoring. Right. Uh, but if you scored a certain amount, it, meant, it would mean, um, well, you, you could go to prison for, say, 13 months. You scored 13 months, but I could go 13 months up to five years. So judge still has discretion. If I want to go below that, which I did with the case we were talking about, I've got to have a legal ground to do it. I've got to articulate that either preferably in writing 
as to why I'm doing it. So I might say, for example, yes, well, the victim was an active participant in that and was it's a mitigating factor because the, the victim instigated the fight, which ended up with, you know, the injury that the victim got. That's a mitigating. The person has a, a um, physical or mental problem that requires treatment, uh, which is not available in prison. There are several things that are listed that you can that you can hang your hat on, so to speak, if you find it. Or um, I forget what the other one is. There's, there, there's a few others. I'm glad we covered this because I, I I had no clue number one it was that strict and that uh, I guess systematized which mm-hmm. is good but uh, knowing knowing more about the range when you hear of a sentence now uh-huh. people who listen to this they'll have a better understanding yeah thank That's you for taking time to do that well sure and, and keep in mind too that uh, at least ninety five percent probably more are the re- sentences are the result of a plea bargain where the state says, okay, you plead guilty or no contest, this is, this is, we agree that this will be your disposition. And they agree it comes from the judge, and the judge can always, has, the judge always has the authority, discretion is not, not accepting it. But if you did that, um, things would grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. Because they'd say, well, you know, hell, I mean, what are we going to do? Let's go to trial. And, you know, well, judge, what would you do? Well, I'm not getting involved in plea bargaining. That's not my job. Well, we hear about plea bargaining all yeah. the time in yeah. the news. So would it be fair to say that that's somewhat of a negotiation between the two mm-hmm. sides? That's exactly what it is. Okay. And the state makes an offer. The defendant says yes or no, or they come back with a counteroffer, and they, they go back and forth. And it's like anything else. Both sides are looking at um, what's my chances of winning? You know, if I go to trial, can I get a conviction? Well, I think so, but it, you know there are weaknesses in my case, so I'm willing to accept less if you'll. Plus, it'll save me the time and trouble and effort. Sure. Can I get my witnesses? You never know what'll happen. Maybe they don't show up. Maybe they don't say what I think they're going to say. Um, and then on the other side, it's like, well, I, I, you know, what's my chances of getting an acquittal? I'm looking at they're offering five years in prison. Damn, that's a lot of time. Well, yeah, but you could do 15. It's a second degree felony. You could end up doing 15. You score out for you know eight or ten, so five is pretty good if you're convicted. Right. So you you know it's, it's always um, and and civil and criminal um, weighing the chances that you have of, of succeeding all the way. <clears throat> and, and like I say, part of it is is time and money from the state standpoint. They may have a very strong case, but they're saying, listen, if you'll save me all the trouble of having to do it, I'll make you this offer. Interesting. Yeah. So th- that's a good clarification, too, because you know that there's something going on, mm-hmm. but you have never really understood the, and I hope I never have to participate mm-hmm. in it, to be honest, on either side. Yeah, I'm glad you have <clears throat> Let's switch gears and talk about uh, things that you're doing. Way before you retired, you started writing books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were telling me earlier while we were having lunch, you've actually published three. One is finished, looking for a publisher, and you're almost done with number five. Tell us about the books because when you first started doing this, I was fascinated. In fact, you were gracious enough to uh, donate some of your books one night to, uh, as a door prize at seminars. But tell me more about how you got into that. Tell us a little bit about your books. And, and folks, you got to read these books. So they are, they're very good. They're fun to read if you, if you like legal stuff. But, but please, tell us. Give us uh, some background. Well, we talked earlier about Perry Mason and how I got into the law. I've always liked uh, mysteries. I've always liked legal-themed mysteries uh, to to read and to watch. And so um, I used to read that sort of genre. Um, 
in some cases, as we talked some books, some parents like we talked about, you'd look at it and say, what? You know, I would say, that's, that's crazy. Uh, that's, you know, and I, and I would say to myself, I could do that. You know, somebody wrote this book and they got it published. Um, and I'd say to myself, you know, I think I could do that. Um, never, never done anything like that before. Never took um, any, well, I did take, actually, I took a creative writing course when I was undergrad, but I, I remember very distinctly my uh, instructor not being very encouraging. I remember also you telling me one time at a Rotary luncheon that you got interested in writing. So you, I think you went and took a class in the yes, evening. I did. Talk about that for a minute because yeah. the reason I want this emphasize is too many people sit back and they, they hold back, oh, I can never do that. I can never do that. Right. That's a bunch of hogwash. If you decide you want to do it, just go do it. Yeah. Well, it's like anything else. You could say, I'd like to, I'd like to be a, a pianist. I'd like to uh, learn how to play the piano and be a concert pianist. Well, you know, be, you're not going to do it right away. You have to learn. You have to do it. And um, you know what? What got what actually got me started was I, I read these things. But I read uh, very soon after I got on the bench, which would have been January of '89. I read uh, Scott Turow's book. He actually pronounced it Turow, but everybody says Turow. So uh, his book called um, Presumed Innocent. Mm -hmm. I read that book and I said, "Man, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. It's very realistic." Great story. Boy, I wish I could do something like that as opposed to looking at some crap that I read. Uh, and that's what really got me going. I said, I'm going to see if I can write something that I can look at it later and think it's okay. So I did that, and that was probably sometime in 1990. And I just make notes and do an outline and write some rough drafts and stuff. Didn't really know what I was doing. Um, of course, my wife would say, what are you doing up there? I mean, you know, oh, I'm writing a novel. Okay, fine, dear. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I can hear Fran doing that. Yeah. Okay, fine, dear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never expecting anything to come out, of course. <laughs> but then, as you say, it was probably two or three years into that process. Um, I said, yeah, you know, maybe a good idea if I took a class on writing. That might be worthwhile. Maybe FSU's got something. As it turned out... Um, they were having a class at night called Narrative Techniques, taught by Jerome. Um, gosh, I'm running a blank now on his name. Shoot. Anyway, he was the he was the head of the department of the uh, Creative Writing Department. I'll think of it anyway. Anyway, and he was teaching it, and it was at the Center for for Professional Development. And so I called up my friend Mary Pankowski, who was heading up that at the time, and said, Mary, is there any chance I can get in there? No problem. We'll get you in. Okay, I got in. So I'm there the first night, and he's looking over the roster, looking at me. How'd you get in this course? It's supposed to be undergrad, you know, full-time. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I just signed <laughs> I have up. A free, a, I have a free end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but that was a great course. Um, Stern. Jerome Stern was his name. He was he was very nice. He would you know he, he'd he'd give assignments. We turn in our stuff, and he would make comments on it. Um, but I, I found him to be very insightful, very funny, and um, encouraging. And so, um, you know, when that was over, um, there was another course called um, something about novel writing, the novel workshop or novel workshop, taught by an undergrad or a graduate student. 
pinball. So I uh, decided to take that. And that was also good, mostly because she would do kind of the same thing. She would critique whatever you turned in. But you had other people in the class do the same thing. And after the class was over, there were, there were three or four or five of us that said, want to continue? You know, <laughs> we don't have to be in this class to do this. So we met, and that helped me finish my first novel because I'd have to turn something in. People would critique it, and um, it, it helped me get through it. Tell us the title of your first book. Conflict of Interest. I remember the book. I couldn't remember the title of it, but I remember reading it. I, 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 didn't, I couldn't put it down. I read the book in one sitting. Okay. I enjoyed it. It was a good book. And uh, so how long did it take you to go to book number two? Um, I started right away on book number two because after I, you know, I, I finished that and I, I got pretty good feedback on it. it made me think maybe I, maybe I can find a publisher and I eventually found an agent and a publisher, small publisher, Pineapple Press down in Sarasota. But I was just tickled pink to have it published. And my agent said, well, just keep writing, don't. You know, don't stop because it takes so long to get it done, but also so long from the time you submit something that it might get accepted by some publisher and may get published. That's, you know, typically at least a year and a half and a lot of times more depending on when you accept it. So, um, but it, it generally takes me or took me five to six years from start to finish product. Do you see yourself continuing to write now that you're retired and have more time? Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm. One of the things I wanted to do um, is not go... I, I feel certain that I will do something legally related, uh, mediation, arbitration, senior judge, something. But I'm not going to do that for at least six months or so, maybe a year. Um, number one, I can't work for the state, else I'll lose my retirement, which right. I don't want to do. <laughs> uh, and I don't want to work for free. And um, since I've started this little thing of writing on the side, I thought I'm going to try to concentrate on that more and, and really spend more time doing that and hopefully uh, see whether I can produce something quicker. And if, if I could earn some decent income, I'd, I'd, I'd do that. You might be the next John Grisham. Yeah. <clears throat> Earlier, while we were having lunch, you made a comment, and I wrote this down. I'm doing what I used to do on the side when I was working. Mm. I now do more of it. Expand on that a little bit because so many people will retire, and I see two ends of the spectrum, mm -hmm. 44 years now of doing my work. I'll see people who retire, they do nothing. They sit in front of the television and they wither. I see others who they retire, but they're very busy doing other things. Mm -hmm. So just just share with our audience some of the things that you're involved in. Sure. Because to me, it's a bunch. And you're a young guy. You know, you're you're you're. I forgot. Tell us how. Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. So you're only a year older than me. Uh, you you've got a lot more life in you. So there's you're not going to sit around and do nothing. Good Lord willing, right? Yes. But tell us a bit of some of the things you're doing and why. Um, well, we mentioned the writing, and yeah, I, I started that in 1990. So I've been doing that on the side for a long time. Um, and you find the things that, that were connected to your profession. Um, for example, um, I just recently did uh, a round as the presiding judge for a mock trial team practice, which I used to do as a judge all the time. But now I'm not a judge, but they still think, oh, well, you know, hell, come on down and help us. Uh, it's an FSU mock trial team. Sure. Um, I have um, a guitar, which I, I 
one Christmas, about five or six years ago, uh, got lessons, guitar lessons, as a Christmas present. And I, I knew how to play the guitar in terms of just, you know, basic stuff, chords and things like that, a little bit. And so, but I wanted to go further. And I quit taking lessons after a couple of years, but I still would play guitar, practice on it uh, on occasion. So I do that. I try and do that a little bit more. Um, and I got a call the other day from a lady that heads up the curriculum for the OLLI, the uh, OSHA Learning thing, said, maybe you'd like to teach a course. Uh, you know, and it's hard for me to say no to those kind of things. I like teaching. Sure. Um, I've been asked to teach two courses, one evidence with uh, Professor Earhart, who I mentioned before, and a course called Perceptions of Justice. I'm going to teach with a couple other judges at the what we call the College of Advanced Judicial Studies in May, so i got to get... It's all the stuff I used to do before, which I'm still doing. And um, I've also been asked to do a course, short course, on evidence for the Criminal Defense Attorneys Statewide Association in, in April. Um, I have um, signed up to do a pre-screening with my dog to see if uh, my dog can be an, a therapy mm -hmm. dog with the TMH program. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and that screening is Saturday. And I figure, you know, well, I spend a little bit of time with him as I walk him a couple of times a day, and, you know, we have a pretty good um, thing, so that would give him something to do, something for me to do. Take a moment and explain that, because a lot of people don't know about that program. That's uh, one of the best programs around. Would you share a little bit of what that is? Yeah. Um, there's a there's a, several options that you can do, but the idea being is that um, I think the main thing, the one that got me interested was um, a friend of mine, Chuck Mitchell, uh, got this thing going. That's where I first heard about yeah, this, Chuck. Try to try to allow dogs into the courthouse, and the, for the purpose of being um, a comfort to uh, alleged victims, child victims of sexual abuse, mm -hmm. and so you know it's. I think most people understand having a dog to pet kind of calms you down. It's good for you. That's why a lot of people with dogs have a high, high, lower blood pressure and all that stuff. Um, and so um, I thought that's a nice thing. It's a good program. And of course, I was there when they, you know, had a certificate, paw prints on the thing to certify their <laughs> that they can come in and do it. Uh, but there are other options. They you can also go to um, nursing homes. Mm -hmm. You can go to schools and sit there and. They have um, hospice programs. Hospice. You can have, you can have but you have your kid who's real, you know, real um, nervous or anxious if, if they're asked to read in front of an adult. But put a dog there, and the dog's just sitting there, and you're reading to the dog. Dog doesn't judge you. Right. Dog doesn't say that's that's not how you pronounce that word. Um, so um, go to Far State Hospital. You know. So there are a lot of ways that you can be a comfort. And I thought. I'll see. Maybe maybe my dog won't make it through the pre-screening. I don't know. But the dog see. might make it, but you may yeah, not. Yeah, that's what usually happens. Um, but he's a uh, he's, he's pretty chill dog, so I'm, I'm hoping now, that'll work. Now, so far, you've been talking about all the things that are non-physical, but talk about some of the things you do for physical activity. Oh, yeah. For, for many years, um, my exercise primarily has been basketball and tennis. Um, and conveniently located to the courthouse is the First Baptist Church and they have the Christian Life Center. I've been going up there since probably mid to late 70s when I was a lawyer, and I just keep going. And there, there's some people that are still there that were there when I first started. 
And so you think, well, you know, you're 67, what are you playing basketball? But there's usually somebody about your age and speed that, you know, you can try to stay with. Um, so that's good exercise. I've been playing tennis since, pretty much since law school. I, um, um, through basketball, actually, uh, a fellow classmate of mine was also an avid tennis player. He said, let's go and play some tennis. I said, you don't want to play with me. I don't know how to play tennis. I ah, will just hit a bucket of balls. And, and so that got me started on tennis, and that was back in, I guess, the mid, mid-70s. mid And so I've been playing tennis pretty regularly since then. Um, so I... Um, Fairly regularly go at lunchtime, play basketball, and fairly regularly play tennis. One of the things we're going to be talking about with an upcoming interview is how to start planning for these things years before you retire. Right. Because so many people will say, I have no hobbies, I don't do anything. Yeah. And I have a friend who's going to talk about the transition. Why wait until you retire to do it? So you did that early on. You, so for you, it's not a big deal to walk out of the door to find something to do yeah. because you're doing some things related to your profession. Some things totally different, like writing and the, and the guitar, teaching some things, but some things related to your profession, but other things that can change the venue and change the the, the mental venue, if you will. Yeah, my advice to your to your clients is don't wait till retirement. Right. Yeah, this is important for your day to day living, and uh, you know, for example, writing people say, well, when I retire, I'll have more time. I'll I'll get around to doing something. No, you won't. Nope. Um, I agree. And says, so, so, well, I do that, but I don't have time to do it. No, no, no. Uh, you, you make the time. True. I was struck by, and the reason I wanted you to talk about, you taking classes at night. Because I know you're very busy in your work, family, very devoted to your family. A lot of stuff that you do. You're very active in your Rotary Club. Um, in fact, I'm happy that you're being honored as the Rotary yeah. this year. So um, One thing I couldn't to. do as a judge. <laughs> That's right. But I... You make the time. You're right. You had to give up your freedom, your evenings. You could have been at home watching television or being with a family. But you, you, you paid the price in time and money to go learn a skill. But unfortunately, so many people are like, well, I don't want to do that. But then they'll whine and complain later because they don't like the, the results they got. Yeah. I don't have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, either okay. go do it or shut up. Now, <clears throat> you know, some people, you know, if you're... You know, especially younger, and you've got young kids, and you got two or three kids, and they got this going, and you, you just really, literally, do not have the time. That, that's a different issue. Yeah. But even then, if people can find an hour to watch a television show, they could find an hour to exactly. get online and read and study. People ask me about writing. You know, I said, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a lonely uh, endeavor, and uh, it does take a lot of a lot of time. Um, but you know, say, well, how long does it take you to go play around the golf? At least four hours. That's right. You know, so, um, well, that's four hours. That's a lot of time. Or go to a football game or watch a football oh, game. Yeah, go to a football game. <laughs> Prime example. You got to get there early. You got to tailgate. You got to do all this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have to prioritize and you have to make choices. And so you make choices. Don't regret it. I mean, if you said, well, I don't have time to do it and you did something else, you maybe spend time with the kids reading. That's great. <laughs> I got no problem with it. Absolutely. Uh, but, but, uh, and I always reject the thing that I, I don't have time to do something, especially if they're in the same situation. I say, well, I'm like you said, I'm, I've been doing a lot of things for a long time. And maybe if I didn't do so many things, I'd be better at it. Yeah. <laughs> you maybe limit yourself. It's sort of like, well, you know. Well, there's a lot to be said for focus on a few things. Yeah. No doubt about that. 
let's wind this up a little bit. So let's go back to some of the things we've already been covering, in fact. But what advice would you offer people? Let's suppose there's someone listening to this who they're five to ten years away from retirement. Could be longer, but let's just say five to ten years. And they're not sure, okay, what am I going to do when I retire? I'm not sure what I want to do. Share your thoughts on what process, if you will, they should start thinking about. Not the financial side, or that too, if you want to talk about it, but primarily just getting ready mentally for this thing called retirement or slowing down. For me, I know I'll never fully retire. Yeah. I'm taking Social Security and a pension now. I'll never fully retire as long as I'm healthy and clients want me. Now, if they quit coming to see me, then I'm done. Yeah, yes. That's another factor. You know, you have to consider that. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Because in the business, you know, um, uh, you know it's interesting that they're, the financial is definitely a, a part of it because if you're not financially secure, you're planned financially, it's difficult to do the other things that you want to do. You feel pressure to, to earn the money. You got to have the money to fund what you want to do, right? <clears throat> and and so, but if and a, a friend of mine who is, has been retired uh, not very long, but um, came back to volunteer. I get paid volunteer as a um, senior judge. He said, "Well, I, I planned financially very well, but emotionally, I didn't plan too good." Mm-hmm. Says there's only so many projects around the house you can do before you get bored. Um, now, if you really like that, it, it, it's fine, and I, I'm doing things I like. I don't, I don't really uh, regret my decision at all. Like I said, I'll probably end up doing something legally related, but I feel like I don't have to, which is important. And there are other things that I did while I was a professional and, I, and full-time employed, like we talked about, that I enjoy. So it doesn't bother me. I, I do other things. So it's that same advice we talked about: is you need to you need to have a balance in your life. If all you're doing is working. He said, well, I love my work. I do too, yeah. But, um, and that's, that's one of the reasons I, I really am glad I got into judicial education fairly early on um, because that gave me a, a related thing. It was related to what I was doing, and, and it helped to make me a better judge. Obviously, if you're teaching something, you have to learn it, mm-hmm. um, and attending classes as well. So uh, it, it, there are things you can do that will help you in whatever profession you're doing, but will also give you an outlet, give you a little balance. You've got to use those both sides of your brain. Um, and it also helps reduce stress. Exercise is one of the greatest stress Absolutely. reducers. You know, it's like they say, a, a tired dog is a good dog. And so the same thing, you know, if you're tired, you know, um, you're not going to get in too much trouble. Um, <laughs> Gonna, won't be in front of a judge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but mostly, you know, you you feel better. It's a good tired. Um, as opposed to stress and strain of looking over documents and doing that all day. So how would somebody refer to you now? Still refer to you as judge or retired judge? How's, what's the official uh, moniker for you now? I think you're, you, you're, in some circles you're always considered judge. Right. I had a, a lawyer called me the other day on a premise of... of engaging my services for something um, and he, he called me Terry he said I, I gotta get used to this but yeah and it was sort of like when I became a judge um, people I'd known a long time lawyers friends and stuff insisted on calling me judge even if I wasn't in the in the courtroom now when I'm in the courtroom you know you gotta you gotta do it because everybody's looking at that and it's formal and uh, you gotta keep certain protocol but um and, and, and invariably, the ones that I didn't know that well, lawyers who I see occasionally would call me Terry. 
Now this, so they were like, like oh, yeah, I'm, I'm friends with the judge. Oh, yeah, I called him by his first name. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I suspect the same kind of thing. It's sort of like senator. You know, you're always a senator, Senator Graham, Bob mm-hmm. Graham, or right. governor, whatever. Governor, whatever. Right, maybe regardless of that. So I, I think that's appropriate, but it's also appropriate. Now you're not a judge anymore. We just call you whatever we called you before, which is Terry. <laughs> I don't have anything else. Maybe some that's not repeatable. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Well, Terry Lewis, I thank you so much for today because I'm going to wind down what, what I learned today. What I've learned today is more about our court system, the sentencing guidelines, and that when you go in, there are different levels of judicial services. Uh, when you started going through the local courts and the, the circuit, to, to me that was very educational. And I bet a lot of people listening in learn a lot today that, that if they ever need it for themselves or a family member, they'll be better prepared. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I hope it's not too boring for your um, listeners. I don't think it will be because I think what you did, you did it as you always do. You're always very gracious in what you do. But I do want to end it on this, okay, because I almost forgot this. Talk a little bit, a little bit about your most famous case because a lot of people may not even know this, but you presided over in Leon County uh, the hullabaloo over uh, Bush Gore. Can you talk about that for just a little bit? As sure. our parting shot? Sure. I, I, I was one of uh, several judges involved in many cases. I think there were over 30, somewhere around 35, 36, various actions, claims that were filed regarding this election. Some I down, didn't know it was that many. Yeah. <laughs> so, some down in South Florida, you know, butterfly ballots and this, right. that, and the other. And we had we had several that were filed up in, in Tallahassee, and they're filed here because we're the state capital. So if you sue the governor, the secretary of state, or any statewide office, um, you generally sue them in their uh, home, which is Tallahassee, where they have their main office. Um, so that's why the, the very first case I had was a, was a case against Secretary of State Catherine Harris by uh, Volusia County, Dade County, Broward County, eventually joined in by the, the Gore team, mm-hmm. saying... Um, there's a provision in the election law that says if somebody meets certain criteria and requests it, we have to do a recount of designated precincts. And that's what they had going. They were trying to do a manual recount of certain precincts, certain voting uh, districts in those counties. And they had suggested to the Secretary of State that the statute says we have to get this in, we have to certify our results within a week of the election. So that was the 7th and be the 14th. By the 14th, we have to get our certified results. We don't think we can do that. We're, you know, we have to do this manner. It's going to take us longer. So we need an extension. Another part of the statute, that one says, you shall get your results in within seven days of the election. So they were mandatory doing their... But another part of the statute said the Secretary of State may reject untimely filed certified results. So the Secretary of State sent a letter, a memo, or whatever to the supervisors of election saying, if you don't have your stuff in by the 14th, I will not count them. Your the votes will not be counted. So they filed a suit in circuit court asking for an injunction, which is what you can get a circuit. An injunction basically is either telling somebody not to do something or telling them to do something, enjoining them mm-hmm. uh, either affirmatively or negatively. So they, they asked, it's also called a declaratory judgment. We have a dispute about what the law requires, and we need a judge to declare 
what the law is. So they were saying the secretary had to accept our late votes, and the secretary was saying, no, and I ain't going to do it. Right. So we want you to declare what the law is and to tell her to take our right. votes. And um, so, um, yeah, that was, that was the first thing that we had uh, up in Tallahassee, I think. But anyway, so um, I heard the arguments on it and made my ruling that um, it, it, the term may, in terms of the secretary may reject, means that she has discretion. Uh, I mean, she can or cannot. It, it doesn't mean shall reject. It, it's like they shall have it filed. There's a conflict there. They, they're supposed to get it in, but it doesn't mean that she has to reject it. She may reject it. And I said um, that by her telling the counties that they won't be counted, regardless of the reason, she has abdicated her responsibility to exercise discretion. You, know, you can't just say, this is my policy like a judge. I have discretion to sentence, but if you come in with a DUI, this is what you get. Well, judge, you got discretion. You can do it, but this is what it's going to be. <laughs> well, that's not discretion. You, you, you know, it's sort of like, I don't take uh, no contest, please. You have to plead guilty. You, you, you just can't do that. You, you have discretion. You got to exercise it. So she's got to have some reason. So that's that was my ruling. Um, and it came back to me within a couple of days because the Secretary of State's sent out a letter to say, okay, tell me what your reasons are. So they gave them the reasons. They said, they're not good enough. I'm still not going to count them. <laughs> so they came back and said, judge, you need to hold her in contempt of court because she hasn't done what you told her to do. And my second ruling said, well, no, I told her to exercise her discretion. Now, you may disagree with that, but she's exercised her discretion. She's said why she, she doesn't think that's a, that's a good reason. Now, you have a remedy under the election law, if you think that the Secretary of State has unreasonably uh, exercised her or, or abused her discretion, um, but it's not a contempt of court. Um, and um, so that was my first case. And, and I guess the, the one that um, probably you're thinking of, it, it, well, there were a couple other things that, that I had that I thought were going to be important and not be, but the recount was what you're probably thinking of. And that was... Um, the Sandy Sauls had actually where they filed for what they call a contest of the election, which is the remedy I was alluding to. Had it been me, if I were on that side, I would have said, Judge, can we amend our complaint? We want to file a, um, a complaint for to contest the election and ask for a statewide recount. That's where it was going to go. I don't care what happened. It was either going to be requested by Gore or it was going to be requested by Bush, and they were trying their best to make the optics look... So the truth is it was inevitable that that's I what was going to happen. If it, <clears throat> uh, I, of course, you know, the team that's winning, which was Bush, would say, oh, no recount, no, 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 you know, and, um, but to, to me, they weren't going to, it was not going to end up with just the three or four counties being recounted. That was not going to happen because that wouldn't be right, wouldn't be fair. They were all heavily Democratic and, it was pretty obvious to me that eventually, so if it had been me, I would have done this right away. I would have saved the time. I wouldn't have gone up to the Florida Supreme Court, gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court, come back, done a couple other things. By then, you'd wasted too much time. By the time you had the trial with Sandy Sauls, you were really running down to the wire. And then the Florida Supreme Court says, hmm, I would think you're wrong, Sandy. Um, we want a statewide recount of all the ballots. Yeah. And it came back and Sandy Sauls said, I ain't doing it. You know, I, I recuse myself, and and um, Judge um, Nikki Clark uh, was home by then and had had a pretty rough week. Anyway, 
she got a lot of death threats and terrible things. So um, she well, said, I, I prefer not to, to do it. And of course, then it came to me, who happened to be there on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lucky Terry. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was, that was the one that um, was probably the, the more visible. What would you say were the learning opportunities for you going through that? Because it had to be a hell of a lot of pressure on you. Because I, I remember talking with you during that time, son. And what I've always been impressed with is you've never revealed your personal feelings about any stuff. You're just like, this is my professional job, mm -hmm. and you don't talk about it. But in hindsight, looking at that, back in 2000, early 2001, what did what came out of that for you? What was the learning opportunity, if any? Um, it reinforced um, um, my belief that we talked about the perception of justice is that uh, it, it, depending on the place where you're coming from, if you are an invertebrate, invertebrate, invertebrate what's the term? Um, unrehabilitative um, person, mm -hmm. you see things in a partisan way. So if you're a diehard Democrat or diehard Republican, you're, you're an advocate for your, your client or your candidate, um, you think everybody else is like that. It's being, it's like being a, a, a liar, a, you know, what do you call it when you can't help yourself? You're a liar and you can't help it. Yeah, the compulsive liar. Compulsive, yeah, you know, you think everybody else is. You know, so people would look at that and they would look at me and other judges and they would look to see what party we belong to, who appointed us, right, and say, oh, well, we know what's going to happen here. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's an insult to because to, judges. I don't care whether they come where they come from politically. Um, not not everybody, of course, but I think most judges are, have integrity and they're conscientious and they want to. They may be wrong. We're all wrong. Sure, but uh, they want to come to what they think is the right answer based on the facts and the law. Um, so that's annoying, uh, but that's there. But it reinforced my belief that it's important that judges explain to the litigants what they're doing and why. So that people who's, who are watching, and here you had a lot of people watching because it's on national and international TV, would say, okay, I understand. I don't agree with it, but I understand. And, and, and it helps to <clears throat> encourage or promote trust and confidence in the whole system if, if they know what you're doing. That's why it was probably good it was televised. Yes, and you told us during lunch, you have lunch with Jay and me, from the standpoint of the uh, professor that will call on students for asking questions even now. So this case is still out there from the standpoint of in the public domain, if you will, mm -hmm. as being studied. And it, I mean, it, it'll happen again. There's no well, doubt. Down like, the road it will like I said, I just did an interview <clears throat> for a group doing a documentary on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's still an And of course, next year will be the 20th anniversary of that. Doesn't seem like that long. Yeah. But, um, Craig Waters over at the Florida Supreme Court's trying to do something to get a lot of the participants together to do something on that. So yeah, it'll, it'll always be a little footnote in history. Um, that was a kind of a special situation. Well, well, you had your few minutes of fame. Yes. <laughs> I remember seeing you on television a lot then. Terry Lewis, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. It was, it was good seeing you again. Yeah. Thanks for lunch. You're welcome. <laughs>
If you would like to know more about John Curry Services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities, products, and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances. Not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Copyright 2005-2018. through This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own.